This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. In my own life, I also would not use many of the things that many people who think of as anti-aging. I see the evidence that those things don't appear to do anything at all. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast, Llama for short. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, could it be that people, Americans specifically, are aging more slowly than they were, say, two decades ago. Well, a new study by the University of Southern California, USC, and Yale University suggests that life expectancy may be increasing, not simply because we're getting better at keeping old or sick people alive, but because the rate of biological ageing is changing. Well, I've come to the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology here in downtown Los Angeles to meet Professor Eileen Crimmins, who is a senior author of the study. Professor Crimmins, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Nice to talk to you. So I'm curious, does this study or the results of this study suggest that we are indeed mastering the aging process? Well, we may not be mastering it yet, but I think perhaps this is the first sign that we've begun to delay it. And that's important because while there's been an emphasis on improving health span over the last decade or two, we haven't really seen evidence of that to date. What we had been seeing was that while life expectancy increased, the number, the amount of time that people spent with diseases has really increased substantially. The length of time that people have spent with disability has increased as much as the disability-free life expectancy has increased. So those were both signs that while we were doing, um, we were improving life expectancy, we weren't doing that well at health expectancy. So now we move to sort of the beginning of the process. And we have always... uh, studied this process thinking, how is it that you really are going to improve the health span? And we have been saying that the only way to do it is to affect the beginning of the process. And so the beginning of the process we see as this physiological change that occurs before you get diagnosed with specific diseases or before they progress to disabilities. And um, The other author of this study, uh, Morgan Levine, who's at Yale, was a student here and subsequently a postdoc at uh, UCLA, and now she's at Yale. Um, She really developed this measure called biological age. And it's a combination of physiological markers that tend to change with age that are related to aging, but it's a way of putting them all together to give people 
an age that reflects their biology rather than their chronology. Let's just take a a step back, as you've mentioned, and this really goes to the heart of a lot of what we talk about on this podcast in terms of life expectancy, health expectancy, Mm -hmm. or health span, as a lot of people refer to it. Can you just give me your definitions and and distinguish between the two? I'm a demographer, and uh, I tend to be slipping a little bit on the definitions because the biologists are a little less clear-cut what they are. Um, demographers have always had a hard and fast rule, and we've done this for a long time. So I would say uh, life expectancy is the average length of time you, uh, a population lives, just the, the age you are when you die. And health expectancy, I'd say, is the average length of time you live with health as opposed to non-health. Now, that's the problem. It's, uh, health is a lot harder to define than um, life. And so we have actually talked about dimensioning health, and then uh, we've studied trends in different dimensions of health for humans, and that's what I just reported to you about differences by um, disease status and differences by disability status. And now I think the issue is physiological status. And the reason we dimension it this way, and we've sort of developed a model that says when you look in populations, you can see population health deteriorate through a process that begins with changing physiology, then gets changing uh, prevalence of disease, and then subsequently a changing uh, prevalence of disability, and then frailty and death. So in populations, there's a clear process. For individuals, it doesn't have to work that way. I mean, people seemingly die in good health, but it's just they haven't been diagnosed, perhaps, or maybe something sudden happens. But for populations, it's pretty clear how change occurs. And that's why we've been talking about what you need to do is move back in the process and prevent the process from occurring in order to end up with a healthier population at the same time as you're having a longer-lived population. So you want the changes that are occurring to actually affect more the um, onset of some of these stages rather than just the length of life. And in all honesty, most of what we've been doing so far is, uh, in, in terms of medical care, is saving people who already are diagnosed with diseases. We've made incredible progress at reducing mortality from diseases like heart disease. I mean, the rates now uh, are about 40% of what they might have been in the 1960s. I mean, they're very low. The cancer rates are starting to fall. But it doesn't mean you end up with a healthier population. What we've done is save people, which is what we wanted to do. That's what we set out to do. But we end up with a population living longer with health problems. So it, it is a win in terms of accomplishing what we paid all the medical care bills for, but it's a minus in terms of what the population is experiencing. So we haven't really done a lot to prevent the onset of these conditions. We see a little bit of evidence now, like the first heart attack is moving up a little bit in age. That's good evidence of preventing these kinds of changes that are related to aging to a later age. Mm. So if you're going to make progress in health span, what you're really trying to do is push off the age at which certain events occur. So let's talk about this study and how you carried it out and where the data came from. So um, this study um, 
is uh, based on national data for the United States, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is a regularly occurring, ongoing uh, study of a representative sample of the United States. It's large. It's uh, thousands of people that are interviewed in two-year cycles, and it's continuous. And people go to trailers and, that travel around the country, and they give blood, and they get x-rays, and they do. Um, they take a variety of, of performance tests, uh, vision, denta, uh, dental, a variety of tests. It's good data. It's, I can say it's reliable data. It's reliable data. It's valid data. It's sort of the best um, cross-sectional trending data uh, we have in this country. And uh, most studies don't have a lot of biology included, or they don't have a large enough and representative population. This has both. So it's a large sample across every state in the U.S.? It's across a set of primary sampling units that are chosen to get a sample that's representative of the U.S. It doesn't necessarily mean that every state is sampled in every period, but the sample is representative in every period. That was my main point, that you're happy that the sample isn't just inner city people or rural people. It's a nice cross sample. And it's Southerners and Northerners and Easterners and Westerners. So it it represents all aspects of the country. And the data is, is... is widely available for, for people in, in your position, uh, for scientists to use this data and in, interpret, depending on what you're looking at? The data are essentially public use, which means that if you're using them for research purposes, y- you can get them, you can download them from the web. And they're produced at government expense, and they're available to anyone in Great. the world to use them, basically. And many people do all over the world. Um, people use them, they make comparisons for uh, other countries with these. So they're very solid data. Um, What we did was we took a a number of markers and we said, well, which ones are related to age? And we look at the population that's above age 30 through age 75. We don't use a very old population here because the sample's somewhat smaller and and we decided to to top it at age 75. And then we looked at these um, about 25 markers and we chose the ones that really did change with age, that were correlated with age. And it's a series of things that you're fairly used to. Um, Cholesterol, uh, multiple measures of of cholesterol, HDL and total cholesterol, and uh, multiple measures of hypertension, and then indicators of um, uh, inflammatory mechanisms that might be uh, C-reactive protein, um, albumin, uh, CMV. There are a set of uh, eight indicators in this um, index, which we then make this biological age where what we do is we say, how similar are you in this indicator to people of uh, your age uh, on average? And then we put all of these together in order to and weight them in order to estimate your biological age, and then we compare it to your chronological age. So some people will be have a higher biological exactly. age than their actual age, and, and vice versa. Exactly. So on uh, some people will be who are fifty will biologically look like they're sixty, and some people 
who are 50 will biologically look like they're 40. As um, it's not part of this paper, but uh, as an example, we've looked at race differences in the United States, and we found that at age 51, um, or at age 50, in this case, uh, African Americans look three years older than uh, non-Hispanic white Americans. So it, there's a set of things we've done where we say this seems to be a relatively good indicator of a health status that's related to, uh, to other health outcomes. So, for instance, we have related it to mortality. When Morgan Levine first developed it before we used it in other ways, we related it to mortality. And um, when you say look older, you mean the biological age. I mean, not, sorry. They don't physically look older. Yeah, I don't know what they look like, yeah, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's an important point because some people <laughs> yes, clearly sorry. do look older than what yes. their biological age might suggest. Yes, I only know their biological age and their chronological age. I don't really know what they look like, although other people have done that kind of work. Having analyzed the data, what did you find? Well, what we found was that if we look over the recent 20-year period, which we can examine, that biological age has dropped remarkably. And that for older people, the oldest people that we look at, so people mainly in their 60s and early 70s, we find a drop in biological age that's about three and a half years. And if you look at people a little bit younger in their 50s, the drop is about, or, or 40s, the drop is about two years. And if you go all the way down to people in their 30s, the drop is about a year. So what we're seeing is that People across this age range look biologically younger now than they did 20 years ago. Now, uh, and when we say what is this due to, in good part, this is due to control that comes with drugs, that people are controlling their hypertension, they're controlling their cholesterol. That is a major part of this um, improvement in biological age. So Another a, part is, is a reduction in smoking. Right. So there's a greater emphasis on control than prevention. Well, that's not my emphasis right. <laughs> necessarily. Okay. The emphasis is if you try to explain what happened, control is more important in what happened than prevention. And Unfortunately, I think that is the kind of message we see repeatedly that if you can use pills to do it, it's easier for people to do, and it's also easier for people to prescribe, and it works. Um, um, people talk about problems with the American healthcare system, but we actually are pretty good when it comes to doing things that have a clear rule about when you do something and when you don't and how you do it. And that's uh, high cholesterol and hypertension. We're among the best in the world at diagnosing and treating. And it's also true that in this country, that's one of the things that is not so differential, that even people who are not as highly educated or well off have reason once they're in the healthcare system appear to get reasonable treatment on these in these two areas of where treatment is clearly um, recommended and defined and they know what to do so the message is if you are prescribed those <laughs> blood pressure pills or right. the statins for whatever the condition 
you're wise to take them. That would be my view, that you would be wise to take them, that these things are are related to uh, deterioration in health, having high levels of these things, and it's better to control them. There's a feeling that some of the statins have um, additional effects on in lowering inflammatory uh, mechanisms that are also good. I think also good to be lowered, bad to have, good to be lowered. So I think that these things have been widely used and widely tested and they're safe and the adverse consequences are not great. I don't necessarily mean that all pills are always good, but in these cases, it seems like they've been good and they are kind of the thing that is probably the easiest to do to improve population health. We know people should not gain weight. Now, gaining weight has worked against this and um, because the increases in obesity have led to more diabetes, to higher, um, worse glucose um, uh, control. Uh, it's, people are told repeatedly to lose weight. People know they're overweight. They should change their behaviors, but it, people don't. Um, reduce their calorie intake, and improve their exercise, which, even though they think they know they should. Which kind of leads me on <laughs> to the, the thought I had a moment ago when I, I said to you, you know, people therefore should take these medications because they seem to be working. And you, you kind of sighed and said, well, yes, I agree with that. But yes. is, is the, the sentiment behind the sigh that if only people didn't have to and perhaps thought about their health a little bit earlier? Well, I think no matter what, these things are related to age. Hypertension is a likely, or increases in, in blood pressure are likely to occur with age, uh, with systolic blood pressure. And even in populations that are thin and work hard, this happens. So, um, and, the, and some of us may be genetically predisposed yes, to yes, these Yes, exactly. So I, I do think when these conditions reach levels at which treatment is recommended, it's probably good to have the treatment. But I do think that the real aim is to prevent these things from happening as early as they happen. And so if it's possible to be um, to live a healthier life and put off these things, that would be the better way to do it. But then eventually it will probably catch up with most people or, or many people. And obviously the reason why there's a greater reduction in biological age in older people is, is that simply you've lived longer and there's a greater chance that right. you will have these conditions. Yeah, you, there's a greater chance you'll have the conditions, you have a bigger age to begin with, and so there's more spread about the age um, as you get older and older. Um, there are there are people that are quite a bit higher and people that are quite a bit lower, and that's not true when you're 25. Um, these these things um, really haven't happened to many people at all in in the or in the 20s and even 30s. So that's why it, the change is greater among the older people. They had more to actually um, improve. I'm just wondering, just stepping aside a little bit from the study and the data, uh, the big picture. How do you, as a researcher, when you see data like this, do you, and you've clearly been doing this for, for some time, do you apply it to your own lifestyle? Do you, do you learn lessons that you can then apply? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. 
Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yes, I think so. At some level, there are some things uh, I can see that statins, hypertensive treatment, that makes sense. I, I would recommend it. But in my own life, I also would not use many of the things that many people who think of as anti-aging, I see the evidence that those things don't appear to do anything at all. And um, I would not spend money on those things. So, uh, so, <laughs> so like what? It's uh, well, I'm <laughs> most tempt- of me, tempted me most of which is uh, anti-aging is not is not really going to do much. Um, I, I believe that the strongest evidence uh, is for exercise. Do I do as much as I should? No, <laughs> but I know I should. I believe. Uh, Maintenance of weight. I believe in in eating almost anything, but in moderation. I think all things in moderation is important. I I guess we look at balanced lifestyles, and we see there's no one way to good health. You've got to be socially healthy as well as physically healthy. <laughs> You've got to be integrated. Uh, I mean, I think we do learn things from what we do. Also, if you're an aging, I mean, the thing, the thing that you worry about the most, I think, uh, and when you work in a building where everybody does aging, everybody's always worried about cognitive loss. And if anybody forgets anything, they're <laughs> sure they have Alzheimer's. And generally, they don't. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> I've also learned that uh, most people forget things, and it doesn't mean you're going to have Alzheimer's. <laughs> so, But are you, you maybe uh, referring to the, the sort of the quackery side of, of longevity that we might see in, yes. in glossy magazines and in headlines mm-hmm. and, and in quick fixes that uh, some people will be suckered into? Most people are suckered into. Most people. And a lot of, most of the headlines are of things that don't play out. Um, and m- most of the research findings even that are reported in very reputable places don't replicate and don't play out over the long run. And um, I mean, I'm part of a large, another very large national study, the health and retirement study that I'm a co-investigator on. And we have a lot of, lot of biological samples that we're, we have a lot of fancy data, a lot of biological samples we're waiting to use until we really know what are the markers that we need to really watch in people to determine how they're aging. And most of what uh, comes out isn't replicated enough for us to go ahead and spend U.S. government money on a U.S. government sample of 10,000 people to assay because it doesn't pan out. So we're always looking for what are the markers of biological age. And we, we're, the simple measure we have now is about as well as we're doing, frankly. We're looking now at fancier things like epigenetics and we're a lot of that's solid enough. 
Is there one particular area then, or one or two of the areas, that, that concern you that people are suckered into? I think the taking of medications that are not going to do anything positive and perhaps will do something negative. I, there's a lot of use of medications for Alzheimer's that I think is not warranted. There are a lot of people making money on that, uh, prescribing it, um, and it has some adverse consequences for the people taking it, and it may have very limited potential for positive changing their, uh, their or maintaining their functioning at any for any length of time and probably shouldn't be done. So I don't think things should be used that are not going to have a positive outcome or the, or the likelihood is very low. And the It's all probabilistic, right. this world. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, nothing is assured. And the, the supplement industry? Well, I think most of it doesn't matter, frankly. And it doesn't do anything positive? I don't think so. In general, no. And that's a, quite a commonly held view that we take all these supplements, whether they be vitamins or minerals, and we, to be crude about it, we pee it all out. We do, generally. <laughs> um, I think that's generally, if you have a balanced diet, which is an if, um, probably you don't need most of it. I mean, people may have specific issues in there, but it may be specific to them that they need some supplement to to overcome some individual characteristic on the whole i don't think we we need these things and i think there is some room for harm in interactions and um un, unexpected consequences that in some ways are worse than others now i think over time the whole move to individual medicine could have positive uh, implications. I mean, now, you know, we have uh, GWAS on thousands and thousands of people. Anybody can get theirs done. And um, you can see if you have some particular um, uh, tendency to have some issue that would require some other kind of treatment that... 999 people out of 1,000 wouldn't need. But for you, it could be beneficial. But it's the sort of thing where you don't want to treat 1,000 people in order to have one person have some improvement and have 999 not, not be improved. And uh, I think that some of that's been going on. We're talking in this building at USC, School of Gerontology, where there's research going on all sorts of different areas, including diet. And, and you use yes. the word moderation, which in itself is potentially controversial. I know, and I've talked to Dr. Walter Longo, one of your colleagues right. here many times. He doesn't like the word moderation. I think he thinks that it's perhaps used as an excuse to pretty much do, do what you it. like. Well, also, I think it's, well... Walter Longo has a specific emphasis on diet, and he likes dietary restriction. And to be open about it, I think I think I do as well. I've, well, I've, in that I've experimented with you, that with, with Walter, right. as, as everyone knows that's listened to this. Um, well, having limited calories is not necessarily always a good thing. Um, Which I always under say, all it, absolutely, circumstances. it's not good for everyone. <laughs> right. It can actually be very dangerous, and actually, I think that, that's very clear. Yeah. And I. I mean, for much of the human existence, 
limitation in calories was the way we lived. <laughs> Let's face it. Um, people didn't have enough to eat. And so I have a sort of long-run perspective on this. I've studied has, uh, historical trends in health and mortality a lot. And uh, if you go back 100 years, people were basically hungry. And what has happened over 100 years is that um, we got richer. We used the money to buy food. In many cases, you see that's one of the first ways people spend more money when they get to be a richer country. So, for instance, Mexico has added incredible number of calories to their diet. Obviously, they liked that, um, being able to add calories. On the other hand, Japan got rich, and they didn't add calories. They added very intense uh, fish mm -hmm. and um, uh, small servings of very uh, uh, things they liked very much, excellent quality, and um, they didn't. They haven't gotten fat like the rest of us, and they're about the only people that are not really gaining weight. So I, there's something there. Um, but also, I, in many ways, our bodies are probably tuned to living without many calories, right? I mean, if, if we actually evolved in a world of few calories, and the difference is it was few calories and very high infection, and that our, somehow our bodies were in t attuned to trying to fight this infection that was rampant, and people were all dying of infectious, or primarily dying of infectious diseases, the hard thing was get to, to get to be 10 years old and survive baby uh, uh, weaning and uh, childhood. Uh, there's, there was an interaction with our genetics and our food and our health. And what happened was we got too rich, we made too much food, we got too fat too soon. <laughs> and our, body, our body's still attuned, actually, to the old world of no food, high infection. And I think we're out of sync right now. So we've got to get back in sync somehow, which probably means less food. And um, or I think moderation, not starvation. But even in the laboratory animals where they've tested the um, caloric restriction, one of the side effects is deaths from, uh, more deaths from infection. So it, it weakens the organism for that kind of challenge while it may do other things. And it depends what environment you're in. Clearly, we're in an environment of too much food. And I think clearly you're at a greater risk while you're actually doing the calorie restriction or, or the, the fasting period. That, that is when you're most likely to, vulnerable. to get sick. Yeah. And, and you, have the, you may not have as many resources to fight infection. I so I think you have to be careful with it. Yeah, and I suppose the, the question is, and maybe there's some evidence in favour of this, that after that fasting period or that period of calorie restriction, that perhaps your immune system is better. Kick, kicks back in. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think it would be better. Uh, people should be able to maintain what their weight at an appropriate level. And I think that's something that was not emphasized enough. It ha our getting overweight happened almost without our realizing it was happening. And it just happened around the world because infection went away and, and 
uh, incomes went up all at the same time, all around most of the world. And it overwhelmed us. And now we understand sort of what has happened. We have to start working with children. We, we really have to make sure that we don't, you know, get people's bodies attuned to this kind of metabolism from an early stage. So in terms now, of lifestyle education? Education and um, making it e- uh, encouraging families to eat in appropriate ways. I think that of that as moderation. I, I don't think you have to uh, have a res- calorie restriction. I think your life should be one of eating uh, an appropriate diet with calories that maintain an appropriate weight. However, it happens. I mean, there was just a study out of Stanford uh, today or yesterday, I guess, Mm. that said um, the best diet is the one you'll stick to. And it was comparing, you know, carbohydrates and proteins and various things and basically saying, look, people were doing as as well on one as on the other. It appears there are not so many rules about what the diet has to be as you just sort of have to stick to moderation (laughs) and uh, i'm just wondering in closing a question i often ask people especially people in your position as far as your own longevity is concerned do you have aspirations do you have goals i i suspect from what you've already said that you're quite relaxed in that area yeah i don't have uh specific aims no i my aims would have to do with things i would like to be alive to see happen but i don't want to live to be a hundred necessarily or 110 or 150 for sure. And I don't, I mean... Is that because you're instinctively pessimistic about what your state of health might be at that age if you get there? Uh, there are almost no people over 100 that aren't pretty frail. And um, I think that kind of frailty that comes with very old age is probably not something I want to live with. Interesting way to end this. <laughs> Professor Eileen Crimmins, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. And just before we go, a quick mention of the other interviews that I've done in this very building, and I've, I've referred to them at the USC School of Gerontology, Dr. Walter Longo. You can listen to his interviews, episodes 1 and 46, and we talk about the fasting-mimicking diet that Dr. Longo has developed. Also interview Dr. Laura Pomato, who talked about being the school's first-ever graduate in the Biology of Aging doctorate program. Laura did some fascinating work on oxidative stress during aging, and she did that with fruit flies and you can listen to laura's interview episode 31 as always many thanks for listening FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes including the norwegian tennis player casper rude whenever you put the FlexBeam on you feel it starts to work right away i need something that can help repair all the fibers that i have broken in the surfs the infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. Flexbeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a Flexbeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.